Hi everyone, and welcome to I'll Go First. On today's episode, Obi West joins us. He is a U.S. Army veteran, a spoken word artist, and a sexual assault advocate. His journey is really unique. He grew up in a home witnessing domestic violence, and as an adult, he's made meaning of his experience with his advocacy work, calling for men and women everywhere to not just be bystanders. This episode was really meaningful to me as a survivor. I am really excited to hear what you think. Let's get started. We kind of met each other because I came across one of your spoken word poems, The Perpetrator's Perspective, on YouTube, I think it was, and I just fell in love with it. And I loved your perspective and your ability to form words and communicate is just so powerful and incredible. So I hunted you down to have you come on the show and talk about your experience. But I wanted to take a step back. Can you kind of just share, what are you up to right now? You're you're doing so much incredible work. I conduct training presentations to mostly federal government organizations, some colleges. Just finished one on um, human trafficking, one on domestic violence. Always trying to develop presentations to address different ways to address sexual assault so that it's... um, it's something the audience wants to hear. It's not a popular topic. So if you don't dress it up to some extent, people will run from it before they listen to it. So, Yeah, yeah. I was looking through a lot of your work and you really do take on a lot of subjects that are a little hard to talk about. And yeah. I love that about you as a person and your character and, and how you are willing to bring those that shame, I think, out into the public conversation to, to lessen it. You were in the army for 20 years, is that right? Yeah, 20 years and nine months. What was your job there? I was a property technician. So pretty much to put it in, in, in terms, a layman term, yeah. it's like, it's like a, a warehouse manager. Pretty much all the equipment that the military uses from a pencil to an airplane. It was my responsibility to obtain it, wow. issue it, and then make sure they accounted for it properly. So I was the, the property technician. Were you stationed here in the States or were you abroad? Both. I spent uh, maybe half of my career, well, maybe a little more, maybe three-fourths of my career stateside. And then I spent some time in Germany, some time in Honduras, some time in Korea, and then had a few combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. So you really have gone around the world. Yeah. I know that a lot of your work is inspired by your growing up. Can you set the scene for us? Where did you grow up? What was little Obi West like? Grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a, a very religious family, but you know, as soon as you step out the house in Los Angeles, you're surrounded by Los Angeles, right? And I was in South Central Los Angeles, so I was in the gut of the city where there was a lot of negative influence. And then you have my family who's trying to match or exceed the negative influence with a positive influence so that I can turn out to be a balanced person and not get sucked in by what's on the outside. So. Life for me was, it was a, a, um, a, a, a battle or a challenge to try to determine who I want to be, which one of these influences do I want to allow to develop who I am. Inside the household, what influenced the advocacy? And at the time, I didn't know that this was going to turn into what it has been, but I grew up in a household where there was abuse. Not, I wasn't abused, but abuse amongst parents. So I watched that. So as a child, when you watch that, it, it puts you in a position to where you now have to create a definition 
of love. When you look in a dictionary, the definition of love says a strong feeling. It's as simple as that. Well, that that's consistent with hate as well. So the details of love are determined by the person's experience. So if you grew up watching two people fight and then say, I love you, you put those together and now your definition of love becomes it's abusive. And if you carry that on in life, that's how you show love later. So it put a child in a position to where now I have to figure out what love is to me. I determined that I, didn't, I never wanted to inflict that level of pain on anyone else, whether directly or indirectly. So later in life, I started writing poetry and I never force a topic. I just pretty much write what I hear. And after about a year of doing poetry, I look back over my catalog and a large percentage of the catalog was comprised of poems that addressed abuse. Yeah, I think a big narrative for me when I looked through a lot of your work is really right. about not being an inactive bystander. Right. I just think of little Obi West having to witness all of this all the time and how that must have felt for you. Did you have any siblings? Was there anyone else in the house with you? I have an older sister. So it was she and I. She's about four years older than I am. It's crazy how a lot of time blessings can present themselves as a misfortune. Mm, yeah. And that something feels very unfortunate. But then later on, that thing becomes the reason for something extraordinary. If I would have never witnessed that, I would have probably not been an advocate right now. Yeah, that's so true. Have driving yeah. force. So, um, it's kind of like one of my parents had to be the sacrificial lamb in order for me to develop into who I am. Yeah. So it's, just, it's an odd dynamic. In my house growing up, it was hard to watch the domestic violence because I didn't understand how to, like, the, the person that was committing the violence was also my protector. So it got really confusing about, right. it got confusing to be a child and understand what it meant to be a kid and have safety. How was it for you as a guy, I guess, growing up having a dad that kind of was a perpetrator of violence? with your mom? It, it wasn't one of those things that was well known outside of my household, at least yeah. to my knowledge. So um, now that I know what I know and yeah. I know the rate at which domestic violence is occurring, I think, I think the statistic according to NCADV is like 12 people per minute or so, no, 20 people, 20 people per minute is like one person every three seconds. So if that statistic is accurate, then a lot of people who I was associated with, friends, they probably were dealing with the same thing, but it's not something we talked about outside the house. So it was kind of one of those things where it was a pain that you suppressed. And when you when you leave the house, you start searching for a way to mentally get away from that. So now it makes you a little bit more susceptible to what the streets have to offer you. Mm. So there's second and third effects to having to deal with that. And then you kind of, the, the person who's the perpetrator, they kind of lose credibility in a sense. It's like, how, how can you tell me to be a good person when, you know what I mean? So yeah. a lot of catastrophic effects that can, that can stem from that. You mentioned that there was a moment when you realized that this isn't what love is. Right. It sounds like you really have been so intentional about understanding what it is and what it looks like for your experience. What, what was that moment? Can you take us back to... To just, I guess it's more that time because you and I had talked about it and you said it wasn't just a specific moment, but it was more of a time in your life where a transition started to happen. 
Yeah, it was a it was a progressive maturation, or it was a period of time to where you learn what the definition of love is supposed to be. And you look at what television shows painted as. There's beautiful music playing behind love. We walk in slow motion when there's love involved. You know what? So love is the furthest away from pain if you look at the way television portrays it. And media is one of the largest mental influences. So when I look at what television portrayed it as, and then I look at what it felt like to me, it didn't add up. So like, okay, that can't be love. There's no music playing behind that. And there's no slow motion walking behind that, right? So just a, a progressive maturation eventually showed me that that's not what it is. It's a, it's a poor demonstration of it, or it's a demonstration of a lack of it. And over time, as I developed as a person, I just never wanted anybody to feel the way I felt. So if that was love, then I was never going to love anybody. I was going to do something different that didn't have a title. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. Where do you even start learning what love looks like? I, I don't know if there's a story. I think it's just... um. It's, it's like walking, right? It's, it's just when we're a child, we walk and we go two, two, three feet and we fall. Then we get up and we can walk a little further. Then our legs get strong enough to run. So I think it's kind of like that to where we just learn more as life goes by and our understanding of it continues to get stronger. Like right now today, my perspective or my opinion of love is still changing. I know what it's not, but I'm still learning what it is. So I just think it's, uh, I can't pinpoint a time or one lesson, but I just think gradually over time, we just develop our own definitions of, of what love is. And I think a lot of times, one of the mistakes we make as humans as when we're courting each other, we assume the other person's definition of love is the same as ours. So when that person say, I love you, we accept that based on what we think love is. But if that we don't know that person's definition might be abusive. So when they say, I love you, and we accept it, we might be consenting to abuse without knowing. So I think one thing we don't do is we don't ask the other person, well, wait, before you tell me that, what's your definition of love? So it's absolutely different per person, depending on your experience. That's so good. That's so, that's so true. I, yeah, I, I know for sure when I came into, oh my gosh, before I went to counseling, when I came into relationships, I feel so bad for my previous partners because of the way I behaved. There is actually one person in particular and I'm like, man, I wish I could apologize because I definitely replicated the the dynamic that was happening in my household, which was the withdrawal dynamic. I don't know if there's one or the other that's better, but I just like the silent shutdown and then ice cold not talking and it wasn't even intentional it was like i didn't even know where i couldn't even conjure the emotions up i just want to dive in a little bit more on your childhood because i think that that influences so much of how we learn how to heal and how we learn how to re-articulate our experiences and get healthy like your sister went off out of the house when you were entering high school right and you're becoming a, a man too like what was the dynamic between you and your dad well, at that time, my father wasn't with us anymore. He and my mother divorced when I was about nine. So for a while, it was just me, my sister, and my mother Yeah, was in a, in a different household. At that point, the abuse stopped. Mm. So later on in life, looking back at that, what that taught me is society has a, a conventional structure for a household, mother, father, children. Yeah. A lot of times we try to live up to that structure, which puts us in a position to we try to accept 
different abuse or different um, dysfunctions within a household because we want to keep that structure because society says that's what it's supposed to look like. So now as a result, we subject children to watching something that's damaging for long periods of time because we want to keep that structure. So looking back, it showed me that sometimes it's more healthier to deviate from that structure and remove the abuse from the household. And children are way more adaptable than adults. Children, they'll be upset for a couple months or so, but then boom, they're right back at it as long as you continue to put something healthy into them. We're adults. It takes us a little longer to adapt. So I think it's the wrong answer to try to maintain a household based off the structure it's supposed to look like mm. at the risk of perpetuating toxic behavior within the household. So that separation allowed me to realize as an adult, sometimes the best move is to remove the toxicity from the household and not try to live up to society's stigma of what the household is supposed to look like. I can imagine that must have been an interesting dynamic given how religious the household was. Faith communities can be very traditional. I have found in my own experience that raising your voice can cause a little bit of, I don't know, side eye or there's a lot of maybe victim blaming or just let's quiet it down. Let's just keep it copacetic. You mentioned just now about how you kind of started realizing that this isn't love and that moving forward, you'd have to create your own definition. What were some of the questions you started asking yourself? I think one of the things that I lived by when I was younger, which at some point I grew out of, is treat people the way you want to be treated, right? It's supposed to be the golden rule. So I knew how I didn't want to be made felt. So I made sure to not make other people feel that way. As I grew older, that that golden rule started to seem a little bit more gold-plated to me, not as much of a great idea because I might be into some weird stuff. And if I treat you the way I want to be, I'm now subjecting you to some weird stuff. So then I grew into what I think is the better rule is treat people the way they want to be treated. So learn who you are, learn who the other person is, learn what their definition of respect is, and then treat them according to their definition and not my own. Because definitions of respect change from place to place. So if I treat you the way I want to be treated, I could very well be disrespecting you based on a cultural difference. So let me learn who you are and treat you how you want to be treated. One thing that comes to mind while you're talking is that a lot of your perspective is not necessarily the norm. I think perspective is everything. Knowledge is one thing, but if you don't have the perspective to tell you how to apply that knowledge, then you you pretty much find yourself just conforming to what society says. And a lot of society's ways are unhealthy. Think back to the early 1900s where being a misogynist was the way to be and women were second class citizens. And some of those opinions are still running rampant throughout society. So if we don't change our perspective with the times, I think it can be bad. So I'm, I'm a theorist and I live off perspective. Again, that's very unique, I think. And I'm coming from a female's perspective and I'm like, mm, I don't know that I have definitely met both genders in my life who I'm like, man, I, I wonder what life would be different if healing was a part of the narrative. And I know how tough it can be for, for anyone. And even some of my girlfriends and I have been talking about like, why did we have 
the desire to pursue healing because healing's really hard and painful. And she was mentioning that she can understand why people give up on it because it is, in some ways, it can be more painful than just sitting with it because you've gotten so used to it. It's very true. It's, it's like heroin, right? You have people who use heroin and the pain that they go through when they go cold turkey to quit is is worse than the pain they go through when they're coming down from a high. So they resort back to the drugs. So they don't have to deal with the pain of healing, right? Crazy. It's the, it's, it's the same thing with, with any other type of healing. There's a tremendous pain you have to go through in the beginning stages to heal. I wasn't an advocate of therapy. I felt like I may have the common man mentality where I felt like, I mean, you're not going to tell me how to improve me based on something you just learned in school. You hadn't even been through this thing. Then I was in a situation to where it was a it was a last resort. I felt like I can't complain about a problem if I hadn't taken all the steps to fix the problem. So let me take this last step just to see what's going to happen. And that was maybe. Three years ago, and I hadn't stopped going since. I think it should be mandatory. I think once you reach a certain age, no matter what you've been through. Yeah, it's really scary. And like you just so eloquently put it, there is so much pain in healing. You also are super passionate about sexual violence. And a lot of your poetry kind of pulls on that topic. Why has it been so important for you to speak out? Well, I think one as a man, I think it's very important. Society says that women are the victims and that men are the rapists. Mm. It's hard to convince society that a man can be victimized, especially by a woman, because genetically we're the stronger gender. So how do you get out overpowered by a woman? And maybe that has some truth to it if you think that sexual assault is only by force. But what if I'm sedated by a substance? There's not a man in the world who has enough muscles to combat a controlled substance. So when you start looking at all the ways sexual assault can exist, what about a three-year-old who thinks that everything an adult does is correct? So when he has a grown man hands his pants, he don't look at it as wrong. He look at it as he's learning something from a grown adult. So when we look at all these ways, we may be more in a position to see how a man can be assaulted. So to go back to the initial thought, society says that women are the victims and men are the, the perpetrators. So when a woman is talking or speaking as an advocate on behalf of women who have been assaulted, she sounds like, it sounds like a selfish cry. People expect her to say it because you're the one that's being assaulted. It's like me as a black man being at a protest for black people. Even though I'm aligned with other people of my hue, it still seems selfish, it's for me. But there's another level of power when I look to the left and I see another race that's not black standing there with the same fight. So when you take the person who's perceived as the problem and they're standing there voicing as wanting to be the fix, there's another level of attention and power associated with that, which is why this protest has been so effective because it's just not black people doing it. So now when you get the man who's the rapist, who's saying stop raping, there's another level of power associated with that. So I think it's very important for me as a man to, to also stand in the gap for people who have been assaulted, aside from just leaving it up to women who society says are the victims. In one of your poems, 
uh, one of my favorite poems, The Perpetrator's Perspective. One of your lines that I love so much because I think this is so nuanced. After questioning, she quickly learned that her booty shorts may be called to the stand as a cotton material witness to testify against her that her legs were out after curfew. I mean, wow. Yeah, victim blaming is huge. And we, we tend to, if I can put this in perspective, we tend to blame the catalyst for the action. So I'll give you an example. You're a store owner, right? You work at a store and I vow to stop eating junk food. I'm not eating junk no more because it's, it's bad for me and I'm addicted to sugar. And then I walk down the candy aisle and I see some candy and the candy is tempting me and my resistance breaks and I pick the candy up, I buy it and I eat it. Is it your fault as the store owner for providing the catalyst or providing the, the temptation? Or is it my fault for not having the discipline to control how I responded to the temptation? What society does is they blame the store owner for putting the candy on the shelf. So if you have a woman who has shorts on and those shorts happen to be tempting to a person and the person acts on their temptation in an irresponsible way, instead of saying, hey, I don't care what she had on. You have a responsibility to control the way you respond to that. They blame her for having it on. You know what I mean? So victim blaming is, is, is huge. We have a tendency to blame the stimulus versus blaming the person who irresponsibly responded to being stimulated. Yeah, so well said. I have gone through multiple sexual assaults. And again, that's another reason why I was drawn to your work because there was one particular instance where I had some friends with me and I look back and I'm like, man, I wish somebody had intervened because, um, it's, you know, you, and you had said this so eloquently, you said that bystander is the most powerful person or most empowered person in a sexual assault situation. Mm. Right. I, I think that's the case. I think the bystander is the most empowered person within that situation. Sometimes you have people who are being preyed on who have been victimized before. When they've been victimized before, they're dealing with um, psychologically, they're dealing with a lot of things that makes them a little bit more vulnerable than they were the first time. So now when they find themselves potentially in that position again, depending on what happened the first time, they may freeze up, they may lose their voice, just all these things that they need in order to protect themselves may, may, may suddenly go numb. Where you have a bystander who's not emotionally attached to that situation, who has clear thought, who isn't dealing with flashbacks because they're not currently in that situation. They're fully functional to step in and, and, and pull that person away from that or intervene some type of way, whether you make a scene and draw attention to it, whether you just go pull the person away, however they decide to do it. I think the bystanders is one of the most empowered individuals in the room, but before they can smartly act, they have to know or be able to recognize some of those signs or behaviors that are consistent in assault cases. If you look at most sexual assault cases like alcohol, alcohol is involved in like over 90% of sexual assault cases. So when you have those statistics and you know and it puts you in a better position to recognize those situations when you see them and, and intervene. Yeah, I I think that conversation is starting to get a little bit on the table. I'm curious what sexual assault survivors have said to you when they hear your work. Thank you. 
think a lot of people are looking for someone who understand. And if they feel like something I said is what they've been trying to say but couldn't say, then they just feel a sense of gratification. Like, I've been trying to tell them that. You know what I mean? Thank you. And thank you sounds like a cliche term, but when you, when you look at their face, when you hear the the vibrations attached to the word when they say it, you you know that if they had a stronger word, they would use it. Have you had guys come up to you? Like every presentation. What are they saying? Most guys, the conversation is brief, impactful, but brief. Um, you'll have some guys that says, because some of the parts of the presentation address male victimization. Mm-hmm. It talks about uh, how prevalent it is. And how it doesn't it doesn't automatically make you weak because you've been emasculated or you've been victimized. And if you've been victimized by another man, it doesn't make you gay. So all these things that are consistent with the way they feel, they'll probably come up afterwards and say something, hey, that was me. I just want to say thank you. And a lot of times. You know, when you're getting ready to cry, you have that knot in your throat right before the tears start flowing. You can tell that knot is there and they, they they get out of there before. So they'll say what they have to say real fast and then they'll, they'll, they'll get out of there. How is that for you? It's conflicting. It's, uh, it's conflicting. It's gratifying because they feel like they've been spoken for. But if I talk to someone who alludes to the fact that it may still be going on. It puts you in a position to where you feel helpless because you want to strap a cape on your neck and just go fix it right there on the spot. Right. But we don't, we, we can't, all we can do is give them resources. So it can, um, it can definitely make you feel helpless, which is, has been a, a key topic during therapy for me. There's times where I wake up in the morning and I feel guilty and, and I can't, pinpoint why I'm thinking about what did I do the night prior? Why am I feeling guilty? And then I talked to a therapist and they said, this could definitely be residue from talking to people who you would like to help and can't. You had said before that self-care and taking care of ourselves is a big theme for you right now. I think self-care is very important because when we develop a strong sense of self, then it allows us to move in our own way with more confidence. We sit in silence and just listen to ourselves. We have an inner voice that have a lot that has a lot to say to us. And a lot of times we don't hear that because it's drowned by outside opinions. So I think self-care is very important that we listen to ourselves and we ask ourselves, who am I? Um, how does this look for me? What does success mean to me? What does happiness mean to me? What do these things mean to me? And then we act on that. But Nowadays, success looks like a certain amount of followers on a social media platform. So if we try to accumulate success based on what society says it is, we'll live our whole lives chasing a unicorn. Mm, yeah, so, so true. Yeah, so self-health means figure out who you are and what the world looks like to you and chase that and not chase this. Something that you said earlier in this interview about when you're talking about love, you have to know what the definition of love is for that person, for that other person. And right. then your journey and definitely my journey as well of learning what does love look like. And so I'm curious about when you have a narrative, how do you know when the narrative that you have 
isn't healthy or isn't the right perspective. Let's say like for me, love was abusive or mm -hmm. love was shutting down like it was for me, for sure. How do we know when that's not actually the best case scenario? Let's use your case as an example. If that's causing turmoil within whichever situation I'm in, then it might not be the healthiest for that situation. But then there's another thing to consider. It might not be healthy for that situation, but that shutting down may absolutely be healthy in a situation with another partner. So I think if you have two different people, just because you have a certain character trait and it doesn't work with that person doesn't mean that character trait is bad. It just means it's not compatible to the person you're with. That character trait may be absolutely what you need with another person. So I think that's one thing to consider. Am I the problem or is, is who I am just not working in this situation, but it may be perfect somewhere else. And then there's another consideration is, is how I am unhealthy no matter where it shows itself at. So if I think love is abusive, that's not going to change situation to situation. That's just wrong, period. But if I think love is shutting down while I'm in a state of rage, calming down, waiting till I'm calmer and then approaching a situation, that might not be good in this relationship because this person wants to talk immediately. But it may be good in another relationship with another person because they prefer to do the same thing in the same way. What I'm hearing you say is really comes back down to that perspective, that perception and kind of, um, I guess, challenging our own perceptions that we might have, even the community. Or even allowing ourselves to acknowledge that we have a perception and not just adopting the perception that's given to us. A lot of us, we discount the fact that we have a perspective. Mm -hmm. We just look to hear one. And then whatever we hear, oh, makes sense. I guess that's what I need to live according to. In one of your poems, you mentioned about being in relationship with somebody that has already experienced sexual assault and how that affects them. And one of the quotes that you say is problem detecting sincere kindness because in her mind that is too decent, smells like deceit, such a good line. And her beauty is a husband she no longer believes in. So she combats all compliments like she doesn't deserve them. And both of those lines for me really, 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 really resonate and it has taken a long time to try and untangle all of that right. i am just would love your kind of inspiration behind behind those two lines well the, the first one about her perceiving certain levels of kindness as deceit and i use her because the poem has to be written in a direction but this can be him or her i think oftentimes if if you have a person every time they've been approached by something that felt good, it turned into abuse. Now their perception easily becomes this type of person is too good to be true. So if they show themselves in this way, I know abuse is to follow. So when they have that mentality, if you look at their only other option is to now only believe in behavior that's bad because anything that's good, you think it leads to abuse. So I think psychologically, when something has been a pattern for you, you, you grow to doubt that, that anything better than that can exist. It's, it's a problem that we have with chivalry. If I can put it, if I can speak about it in a different realm, we had a problem with chivalry right now. Say for instance, I'm a man. And chivalry tells me that if I'm walking with you, I walk and we're walking down the street, I walk closest to the street because I'm supposed to be in between you and any potential danger. If we're sleeping in the same room, I sleep close to the door. If you're getting in a car, I open the door. But say in your experience, 
every person who did those things for you, they later had an expectation for you to reciprocate physically. It's the first day I opened your door for you. I stood on the outside. I did all these chivalrous things. This is what you owe me physically, right? So now the next time somebody tries to open a door for you, you say, no, no, I'll open my own door. And now this guy feels like, man, I tried to be chivalrous to this person and she turned it down. So now you know what I'm gonna do now? I'm not opening nobody else's door. Mm. So now what, what you've been through and how your definition of chivalry has changed has now took a man who really wanted to be chivalrous and deterred him from doing it because how he was rejected. So it's a cycle. We're ruining each other. Yeah. We're ruining each other. And it's just based on what that person's experience has been. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to us? What's the message that we should be thinking about? I, I think we have to. It's, it's very tough, especially yeah. when you're this to someone who has been through a certain level of trauma or abuse. You can't discount their feelings and not what they're dealing with. But I think that the effort is. We have to. One, self-preservation is important. So we mm -hmm. take the lessons that we've learned previous in life. And we use those lessons to protect ourselves later. But we have to figure out a way to let each person show themselves without prejudging them based off of the previous person, but do it at such a distance that we don't allow it to become abusive if that's what's to happen. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Recognize the, the, the different signs. Um, so, and I think that's the challenge, being able to differentiate but the last person looked just like that too. And it turned into this. So how do I know yours is authentic? Um, and how do I not? So I think we, we have to try to give that person the benefit of the doubt as best we can. But at the same time, we have to take the lessons we learned from previous situations and apply them to protect ourselves. And I think that becomes the battle. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I think looks different for every person. I would be, it would be a, um, just for me to try to give a blanket answer that works for everybody. I don't think there is one. Do you mind sharing for you personally how that what that's looked like? For me, there's a period of time to where how can I put this? There's a period of time, and I'm, I'm exposing a lot about me and saying this, but it's, it's okay. Somebody may need to hear it. There's a period of time to where I was married, and I was younger. I was married. I was in the military, and I was traveling around the world. And I've made some very irresponsible decisions, infidelity and things of that nature. And then it became to a point to where I saw how my irresponsibility was hurting my significant other. And it became extremely painful to me to see somebody hurt because of my actions. So now I corrected those actions to the point to where sometimes I um, it's kind of like I overcompensate. So I build barriers to keep people from getting close to me. So that I guess to protect them from me. So it's like reverse trauma. I'm not the person who went through the trauma, but I saw how my trauma, how what I put them through affected somebody else. So now I've created a ton of barriers. I used to tend to answer questions for people rather than giving them a chance to answer. So I would already assume this is where I am in my life. This is where I am psychologically. You're probably not going to be able to handle that. So I'm going to dismiss you for you. So now versus doing that, I communicate and I'll be absolutely transparent about who I am, where I am, and let that person make the decision as to whether or not that's something that they want to be involved in. So sometimes I even over communicate. I ask questions like, what about you is a result of your past relationships? What have your past relationships embedded in you that's still there? 
You know what I mean? Questions like that. It's a good questions. You see where, where, where people are. And throughout those questions, I learn a lot. And it helps me to make a decision as to how I want to move forward. And it helps them to make a decision. Sometimes it creates self-assessments where people hear those questions like, wait, let me think about that. And then they learn some things about themselves and they figure out maybe some steps I need to take to get better in these areas as well. So I communicate, I communicate, I over-communicate. And that's how I give each individual their own opportunity versus holding one person, everybody under the umbrella that this other person has held over me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean... That takes so much strength. And again, I think really speaks to your character as a person. And um, I just, when I think of the work you're doing and just talking to you, I just feel like your heart is such a warrior. And I'm so glad that you're in this world and, and doing the work you're doing as a survivor and as someone who has fought on the front lines of commercial sexual exploitation, abuse, you know, fighting for others. It is so awesome to have to have you in the ring with all of us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Before we wrap up, I, I want to touch a little bit on your poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, how, how did you find your voice when it came to art and just why poetry? I was introduced to poetry at the age of 31. So in my book, you'll notice the first poem starts on page 31. There's no page one through 30. I went to an event. I thought it was a comedy event. When I went in there, there were poets and I saw if you're a comedian, no matter what you're talking about, if it's not funny, you're going to get a nasty reaction from the crowd. So I saw these poets on stage and the level of uninterrupted liberation they was able to have in front of an audience was exactly what I wanted. A week before that, I was telling myself, life feels absolutely empty. I wake up in the morning, I get dressed, I go to work, I come home, I take my clothes off, I get the shower, I go to sleep and then repeat. This can't be all it is. There has to be something else. I have to have another purpose. And I couldn't figure out what that was. And then a couple of weeks later, I go to this event. And the second I saw these poets, it was like, that's that thing. So this show was reoccurring every 30 days. So I went back the next 30 days and I signed my name on a list. And I got on the stage and I recited a poem and my feet left earth and I just refused to come back. So I've been gone ever since. It becomes a, a voice box for people who've lost theirs. So everything about it is just... Um, I mean, it's become my lung. And have you ever tried to go a day without breathing? You probably wouldn't be able to do it. So that's how poetry has become with me. When you sit down to the page, what's happening? My writing, the way I write isn't like that. So it's, it's never it's never scheduled. I never say today at eight o'clock, I'm going to sit down and write. At that point, it becomes homework. And you know how you feel when you got to do homework. <laughs> I keep a Blackberry on my person. So if you and I are holding conversation and you say something that intrigues me, that's something I want to write about. I'll just write that one sentence in the phone and that's it. I write it in a section called seeds with the idea at some point those seeds will blossom into entire poems. And periodically I just go back and I read those random ideas. And then one day I'll hear another idea to attach to that idea. And then I'll hear another idea attached to that idea. And maybe six months later, it's now a poem. So I never sit down and say, today I'm going to write a poem. All I do is jot ideas. And at some point, those ideas turn into poems, whether it takes three days or three years. What inspires you? For me, poetry is an absolute depiction of life. What we experience most in life tends to be what our catalog mirrors. So I'm inspired by every aspect 
of life. You may say something to me and you may intend for it to mean intend for it to mean one thing and it may translate to me as something else. And boom, that becomes an idea. I saw a mailbox, a blue mailbox sitting outside and realized that my daughter might not know what that is because communication isn't done through that blue box no more as much as it was when we were younger. So it inspired the idea for me to write about the the, the lack of recognition given to a blue mailbox now. So anything, um, I saw a bird walking across the street and a car was coming and the bird didn't take off and fly. It just kept walking. So I'm thinking, wow, this is an animal who refuses to use his gift to protect itself. So that may spark an idea. Like, why are you walking? Why don't you just fly? The car's coming. So that sparks an idea. So just everything. Do you have a favorite of all of the work that you've done? No, that would that would be like saying, which which one of your kids do you love the most? <laughs> You'd be like, that one. Don't tell the other one. <laughs> so <laughs> so no, I don't I don't think I do. I think they, they all have a certain level of significance depending on the time. Like right now, that poem is extremely important. Right now, what's going on in the world, that poem is extremely important. So I think they're all they all have their times. What do you want us to know? Every day that you live is one day less that you have left. So it's very important to maximize every inch of your day. Monday does not always have to be a starting point. I'm going to start Monday. I'm going to start Monday. We say that on Wednesday. So it gives us a few more days to do whatever we're not supposed to be doing. So Monday does not always have to be a starting point. I think self-assessments should be done more than annually. We tend to use New Year's resolutions for that. I think it should be done at least monthly. That way we become better 12 times faster than we would if we did it annually and um, take care of each other. Do you have a self-assessment that you like? I don't have a, a script that I have for self-assessments. What I do is every situation that I'm in that turns out to not be as good as it could have been, I just stop and ask myself, how did I contribute to that not being as good as it could have been? I give myself an honest answer, then I ask myself, is that something that I want to fix within myself or is that something I'm okay with? If I decide it's something I'm okay with, I do nothing. <laughs> if I decide it's something I want to fix and I start figuring out how to fix it. We run into a lot of situations in life and every situation just requires an after action review. You sit back down and you mentally go over the situation and feel like, how could I contribute better? And if we do that as often as situations occur, we'll be doing that daily versus waiting until the end of the year and say, I've been messed up for 12 months. Now, let me see what I'm going to fix. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> so true. Where can we find you? How can we stay in touch with you? My website is obwest.com. And then my advocacy website is spokenadvocacy.com. Thank you again. This was awesome. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>